0: When you were growing up in South Africa, you were something of a child television star appearing on a show akin to the Mickey Mouse Club in the United States. True or false? True. Ha! Okay. So please explain.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the show was called "O To Be Me, uh, and it was a bit of a boondoggle. Yes, I sang. And I acted, and for some reason I was swept into a South African television studio when I was about 10, and was asked to return uh, and be a regular on the show, on the condition that I signed up for dancing classes with a couple named Des and Dawn. The whole thing was just a scam, because you had to take their dancing lessons to be in the show.
0: How long were you on the show?
1: Oh, that show, not long. I think my parents saw me dancing, <laughs> they decided that the lessons weren't paying off. <laughs>
0: Uh, Hi everyone, I'm Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to another episode of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people at the university and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. Today's guest is Ian Balcom, former Dean of the College and Graduate Schools of Arts and Sciences here at UVA, having previously spent 17 years at a school in North Carolina by the name of Duke. He was an English professor there and director of the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute. He was recently inducted as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is the author or editor of five books. Raised in South Africa, Ian is a scholar, a teacher, a leader, a husband, and a father. And we at UVA are privileged to have him as our new executive vice president and provost. Ian, thank you for being here.
1: It's great to be here. I think we'll have to see what happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about your childhood in South Africa. Why were you there and um, what was it like?
1: Yeah, uh, my parents were missionaries. My dad was a linguist, and so they had gone to South Africa to do um, adult education courses for mine workers, so running literacy programs for black miners, first in Togo and, and then in South Africa, and Namibia. So that's what brought us there. And I was there from infancy until I was a young teenager.
0: And what was life like there? And I'm sure it's had some lasting impacts on your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think every childhood is the defining experience of your life. So in some ways, you know, it was just a childhood. I I did childish things. I I went to school, you know, I was in clubs, (laughs) I sang and danced. In some ways, it wasn't a usual childhood, at least not a a usual U.S. childhood. Some of my earliest memories, one of the schools that I went to was located in a little mining town in the Kalahari Desert. And our school was literally at the edge of the desert. And for P.E. class, we had to run around the sand dunes. And then it wasn't a normal childhood at all because as I got older, you know, 9, 10, 11, I really began to understand for myself that I was surrounded by a profound evil of state racism that structured every part of our lives. And I didn't have some unnatural insight as an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. A lot of that came later. Uh, a lot of that came from, like, looking back on childhood and coming into understanding of what it means to grow up in a culture that is, that is structured on violence and that can change. It shaped me more, more than anything beyond, you know, my wife and kids and mom and dad and people who've loved me. Uh,
0: so if I remember correctly, you also spent some time at a military boarding school. You've done research. curious <laughs> I'm curious how you went from being the child of missionaries in South Africa to uh, a student at a military boarding school in the U.S., if I in remember US, yes, right. In the U.S.,
1: yes, in Camden, South Carolina. So how did I get to Camden, South Carolina? So when I was 13, uh, my brother was 15. My parents sent us both home to the States because my brother, if he had turned 16 in South Africa, would have been registered for the South African Army. Uh, And because we had lived there long enough, we were permanent residents. So he then would have been conscripted and and drafted into the South African Army when he finished high school. So they they wanted us out of South Africa before that happened. So in order to flee conscription. My brother asked to be sent to a military academy in the US. <laughs> and importantly, it wasn't that, that there was anything wrong with the military, it was the South African military. And my brother actually wanted, wanted to be a soldier. And he he wanted to go to West Point. No one had told us what military academies in South Carolina were like. We had a National Geographic magazine. Uh, we'd get them like twice a year, and would like pour over them and read them like 20 or 30 times over. And at the back of the National Geographic magazine, there was like this quarter-page advertisement for Camden Military Academy in South Carolina. My dad's from North Carolina. We had family nearby. So we signed up sight unseen. So I ended up as a 13-year-old, as a uh, member of the Corps of Cadets of Camden Military Academy, uh, where I spent my first real four years of American life. And
0: what do you remember most from that experience? My
1: first night. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a little bit of that. You know, um, my first night there, the boys in the dorm we were living, the officers, called a hall party, where we all lined up in the hallway at attention while the older boys berated the younger boys because the dorm had failed inspection that morning. And I'll simply say it was a stern berating. <laughs> so I remember that. But, you know, I mean, that, I, I learned a lot. I, I made friends there. You know, it, Again, it was a mixed place. There, there was a lot to learn an important part of my life.
0: So when did you decide to go into academia?
1: Probably toward the end of my junior year in college. I went to college thinking I was going to study politics, which is what I ended up majoring in, and uh, I thought I wanted a, a career maybe in the Foreign Service, so I was sort of ready myself for that. did a study abroad program as a junior in college in London. And, took a series of poetry courses. Uh, I'd always liked literature, but I hadn't been that serious about it. But I took a bunch of poetry courses and fell in love with poetry and started to think this might this might be an interesting way to lead a life. So I, I date it roughly from then.
0: Right, and talk a little bit about your area of academic interests. So when you were an English professor, what were you writing and teaching about?
1: I work in a field called post-colonial studies What that really means is looking at the literature and history and culture that uh, came out of the colonial experiences within the British Empire. So do research on African literature somewhat unsurprisingly, uh, Caribbean literature, Indian literature, uh, some contemporary Irish literature. That's the broad field. And became particularly interested in African literature and thinking about the ways in which racialized identities have been produced and writers, painters, musicians, filmmakers have navigated the experience of race, first in, in the British Empire, but, but then kind of more, more broadly. So that, that's been my area of focus.
0: So your experience growing up in South Africa has continued to influence in ways large and small, including your academic
1: interests. Yes, very much, very much.
0: So in addition to your scholarly books, am I right that you are also the author of a children's fantasy <laughs> novel called Through the Skylight? <laughs>
1: yes, that is true.
0: <laughs> and, and how did that come about?
1: You know, at the end of this interview, I think the one thing that I'm not going to be is your provost, because you're going to go... Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, come <on>. You're multi-talented. <laughs> Who is this guy? So I was teaching in a study abroad program when I was working in North Carolina, and they have a program in Venice. And I was teaching in Venice uh, by that point, Wendy and I, my wife and I were married, and we had three kids. And we had brought a bunch of English language books to read to the kids at night and went through them more quickly than we thought we would. So we ran out of books to read them and discovered that we couldn't find an English language bookstore. So I decided that I would start writing a book for our kids and read it to them at night. And I used the kids as the characters for the novel we were homeschooling them my my wife was doing really all of it I I taught them some really bad Latin but so she would take them to museums and churches and all sorts of cultural sites so I invented this story where there were three kids so the day before they'd go go to a museum or a church to look at some painting I would have their characters go there and and see something so that was the basis for it so (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was going to get rich Uh, didn't happen
0: so there's there's no movie in the in no, the offing.
1: I, I did I did sign a contract though that had theme park rights.
0: Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's come of that yet.
1: Nope, no, nothing. What, what would sadly. the
0: ride have looked like? Do
1: you know? <laughs> well, there, well, there are flying lions, so there could there could have been like a roller coaster, oh, right, uh, right. like a flying lion kind of thing. Yep.
0: There's still a possibility. You know, all sorts of things start to happen once you're named provost.
1: It's true. Yeah. So you, Jim, for instance, uh, could determine that the Emmett Ivy Corridor, in fact, needs a little bit of, you know, fun uh, and a a children's amusement park.
0: Yeah, that's that's high on our list, actually. (laughs) So you and your family, you have a large family, uh, lived in one of the pavilions on the lawn for a number of years. And I wonder what that experience was like for you. And did you and your family like living there?
1: I loved it. I loved just about every minute of it. Well, maybe not absolutely <laughs> You had a bad neighbor there for about a year. I yeah, was right was this, next door. There was this guy, yeah, who lived next door, and he would like come over <laughs> at night asking for food. As you have no present lived next door to us for a little while uh, for a year. It was great, but but it's one of those things also. It's a very banal version of what I, what I said about growing up. In some ways, it was extraordinary, right? I was living in this, in this historic home on the grounds of the University of Virginia on the lawn, and I'd get up in the morning and walk across the lawn and see the cornerstone and get a cup of coffee at the Colonnade Club uh, on the way to work, you know, next to the name of three American presidents. And it's also just, we were raising our kids there, and we right. were just doing very normal things. So it was it was a mix. There, there were a lot of, like, splinters in the wood of the house, and we, we couldn't have the wood, you know, sanded. Oh, uh, right. Because it was, the wood was historic. Right. And it was really thin. And if we had it sanded, the original wood would have been gone. So we just had to, like, kids, sorry, you're just going to get splinters. <laughs> it's,
0: that's the price of leadership right there. There is the price of leadership. So. <laughs>
1: I mean, there are a lot uh, more stories to tell, but but yeah, uh, ba- I, balance I, of I, those things, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so I'm curious, at what point did you decide to cross over to the dark side of academic administration? Did it happen gradually, or was there a, a moment in time where you thought, yeah, no, this is what yeah. I want to do?
1: Yeah, so, some are born administrators, some achieve administratorness, and some have it thrust upon <laughs> them. No, step by step, probably like you. I was. First, the director of undergraduate studies in the English department at Duke I really, really care about undergraduate education, and, and so enjoyed doing that. And then I was asked to be department chair, and like that, uh, and just sort of one of those gradual things was was asked to direct a, a research institute. I suppose I'd been doing administrative work for eight or nine years, and and could have stopped then and gone back to being full time faculty, but realized that I enjoyed working collectively with people on common yeah. projects. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That is the biggest difference, isn't it? I mean, you're much more working with teams than you do as an academic.
1: I think that's right. It, neither one of us is a scientist, but one reason why I think a lot of very successful administrators are scientists is their relationship to the university and to knowledge is, is through the lab, is, is through collaborative research. I think administrative work is a lot like that. You're, you're trying to think about how do you assemble a team to collectively build a project you know, that you'll see some results of immediate, but you're really kind of building for the long term. And it's fascinating. Administrative work is intellectual work at its best. Not every moment of every day, but but you get to see that, and, and it's compelling.
0: Yeah, the biggest difference, well, one of the biggest differences is you realize that implementation is actually complicated and can be intellectually challenging. I mean, if you're a law professor like I was, you thought that your job was to identify the problem and then just propose a solution that would miraculously happen. Yeah. And it's that in-between space that actually requires a great deal of work and is, is far more interesting and far more challenging than I would have imagined when I first started.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree.
0: It reminds me that you often talk of the we uh, in speeches. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by it and why it is such a touchstone for you?
1: So we are Thomas Jefferson's university. We're founded by Jefferson, and that's something we've known about ourselves for a long time, and it's something that continues to be true and is, is true in its inspiration, and it's true in its difficulty. If we're Jeffersons, then that means we're also Sally Hemings, and it means that we are something else that you see when you look at his tombstone. Name's Three things: author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statute for Religious Toleration and founder of the University of Virginia. And as I've tried to think through that very complex, inspiring and broken relationship to our past, those two parts of what's on that final epitaph have really stuck with me. Declaration and University. And I increasingly have come to think of our work as being the work of the University of the Declaration. And if we're the University of the Declaration, then then we are the University of the We. And of a We the People held together by the pursuit of truth. And that's our call to be ever more that we, to expand that we, and to believe that a democratic we gets expanded by the pursuit of truth.
0: Right. So the circle expands, uh, but the central purpose and the central goal remains the same.
1: That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And so, so even as we're changing, we're continuous with our history, right? and, our, and our history right. is what's calling us to sort of continuously change because that is right. this always unfinished promise.
0: Right, the imperfect pursuit of high ideals. Yeah, yeah. So last question, I'm curious what you hope to accomplish as provost.
1: There are three, maybe four particular things, but if there's one unifying thing, it it actually does go back to that idea of the we. and. I want to work with you, I want to work with our faculty, I want to work with our staff, I want to work with our other deans to ask again, what does it mean to be a public university and what does it mean to be a public university now? And what does it mean to actually serve a public? Uh, so if, if there was a single thing I'd really like to accomplish, it, it's to help expand those boundaries of the weE. There are particular things behind that. I mean, it, it means really ensuring that as we recruit ever more students from ever more walks of life, with ever wider backgrounds of history, that when we welcome them in, as we think about advising, as we think about academic support, as we think about student life, that they feel like they're part of the we. Uh, it means that we really need to focus on who our faculty are, right? that, that our faculty represent the diversity of who we are as, as a people. Uh, it means that our research mission needs to be superb. Those are particular things, they're, they're projects to work on, but, but they're versions for me of, of how you get to the we. And, you know, if someone were to ask you, you know, what are you trying to do as president? I think you'd begin and end with great and good. Yeah. And then there are endless number of things within that, right, where right. you get there. yeah
0: um, Well, Ian, thank you very much. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's been lovely to speak with you, and I appreciate your being on the podcast.
1: Yeah, take care. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Mary Garner McGee, Brooke Whitehurst, Matt Weber, and Nathan Moore. We also want to thank Dr. Ian Balcom, Monica Schack, Athena Haney, and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. Listen and subscribe to Inside UVA and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.